Welcome everybody to the second episode of the EU and Me podcast. This week we are going to be talking about the climate crisis and we have two very special guests. First up we have Jacobo Russo, a PhD student from the University of Cambridge with a thesis focused on sustainable manufacturing. Hello Jacobo, welcome. Hi Dermot, hi Paco, nice to be here. Nice to have you. And we're also joined by Anna Morgado, another PhD student in engineering from Cambridge, building efficiency metrics to decarbonize industries. Hello, Anna. Hi, thank you for having me, guys. It's our pleasure. So over to you, Paco. Yeah, so I start with the first question, guys. Uh, and I will say it might seem banal, but I will go back to the basis. Uh, I want to know what actually climate change is. Uh, what I mean is like there is a lot of talking everywhere in the media, but often like my impression is that it remains a bit almost as an abstract concept. So I'm not looking that much for a scientific definition, although you can give us um, that as well, but more like I would like for you to tell us what concrete in concrete terms this means and uh, uh, like with perhaps some example, uh, what are the risks we are facing and I will start with uh, Jacopo. Yeah, so um, I suppose news about climate change have been uh, more frequent, frequent in the last uh, few years. Um, and it is now uh, increasingly framed uh, as what it is, which is an, an emergency, a global uh, climate emergency, uh, which is caused by uh, uh, the greenhouse effect, which is um, a natural effect um, which keeps the atmosphere of the earth warm, um, but by uh, increasing uh, the concentration of, of greenhouse gases, of these gases in the atmosphere, um, the temperature of, of the earth is, is rising. And this is causing uh, a whole sort of set of problems for um, the climate around the world, uh, including increased uh, forest fires uh, and desertification of some areas of the world, uh, and a decrease in the in the areas that we can grow crops on, that we can grow food on, um, and many of these effects can already be seen. In fact. Um, scientists in different parts of the world, in, in the US, in Europe and in Japan, have been measuring the temperature of the earth for many decades now. Uh, and independently, they have all seen the same thing. The temperature has been rising by about one degree Celsius uh, since, since 1850, since the records began. Uh, and it is predicted to um, increase by uh, many more degrees by the end of this century. Um, which would have rather catastrophic effects on, on, the, on the Earth's climate. So it's an emergency that will uh, affect people, first of all, because um, if, if there's less food to grow and less areas are habitable, people will have to migrate, people will have to move. Um, and we have seen how many problems migration already creates in Europe. Uh, and it is also an emergency for the animal world. Uh, I've seen recent uh, statistics from the WWF and by the end of this, of this century, um, a, a fifth of all wild species are in danger of extinction uh, because of climate change. 
Um, so it, it's it's a danger for people and, and for the ecosystems that um, inhabit our planet. And when you say like that is one degree Celsius, like can you give it like historically, do you have a, can you give us a perception? Yes, of what that so I actually checked and it seems like this, uh, so the, the concentrate, the rise in temperature is caused by the increased concentration of gases, as I said, and the last time the, so the concentration is currently at, uh, at of CO2, which is the main greenhouse gas. It's at 410 parts per million. And to give you, and to put that in context, the last time uh, the concentration was this high was between three and five million years ago. Uh, and, the, and at that time, the temperature was two to three degrees uh, higher than it is now. And the, and the sea levels were 10 to 20 degrees high, 10 to 20 meters higher, sorry. Which means that many, many of the cities that are on the coast today would be uh, completely underwater. So it's, um, it may seem as a very small increase, but because it's, a, it's an average, there are some parts of the world that are warming a lot more. Uh, so for example, we're seeing uh, the ice sheets in the Arctic melting um, very fast. Um, and this, this is extremely problematic. Okay, that, that is really, really clear. Uh, something to add, Anna? Uh, yeah, I, I was just something that it's interesting in the situations that, in fact, and it's used a lot about uh, climate crisis denialists, is that climate has been changing for the entire history of the Earth, and that is true. But what is completely different this time is uh, uh, the statistics that Jacopo showed, um, clearly highlight, is the pace and how fast it is happening right now, and also that is the first time that it's caused by one single species on Earth. So if we see why the levels of CO2 are rising since the uh, 1800s, is because there was uh, industrial revolution. We started burning fossil fuels, the, the concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere started rising. Um, and that's really up to us. There was a, all other uh, events in history where this happened as well. But we're talking about volcanoes, big eruptions. Uh, it was not one single species doing it all in, in such a short amount of time. And I think that's why it is a real crisis. And if we humans can make it, we also have to uh, be the ones that come up with the solution for it. Okay, really, really interesting. Good point there that, um, that it's just been one species doing everything. I hadn't really thought about that in the past. So sticking with you, Anna, um, you might want to answer this question first for us. What is the timeline of action we're looking at now if we want to change this climate change? Is this situation even still reversible? You touched on the Industrial Revolution, and I know it, it seems pretty well accepted that there are some industries that can't change completely now. Would you be correct? Would it be correct in saying that? Or could you develop a bit on what's reversible and maybe what's not reversible? I, I don't think that at this point it is reversible. And I know this can be a debatable question. Uh, but the reason why I don't think so is because climate effects have long-term impacts. So what we are doing now will only have an impact in the longer run. 
it's very difficult at the point where we are right now, even if we shut everything down to uh, accomplish the 1.5% degrees Celsius of the Paris Agreement. We can do is create measures to mitigate the effects that we have. And that's a really important. And it goes beyond pledges. So although the Paris Agreement was extremely important and you do see pledges from governments all around the world, there are just that, pledges. Mm -hmm. And there's, I think, in my opinion, a lack of the change uh, between what we say we want to do and concrete actions and concrete plans made to make it happen. So um, from what came out of the Paris Agreement were national determined contributions, but most countries have not come up with plans to put it in action. Uh, that's why it's very important, actually, COP26, 20, uh, 20 that's coming next year, um, because they are supposed to present the concrete plans to reduce the emissions. And I'm very excited to see if we can step beyond the words but I'm afraid that at this point, climate change effects can be mitigated. We can adapt, but we won't be reversing its effects, what we came up to at this point um, in the short term. And when I say short term, it's the next decade. Okay, Jacobo, do you share this view? Do you, do you think we're, we're beyond repair? Is it just a matter of time and we have to mitigate, as Anna said, or can we can we reverse the situation in your opinion? There is one word in um, in what in, in Anna's response that uh, resonates with me, which is adapt. Um, I think rather than asking ourselves, is, is this reversible? The question we should be asking ourselves, can we is can we adapt fast enough? And um, I think it is quite clear to everyone in the scientific community that um, at this pace of reduction in, in greenhouse gas emissions, climate change will not be reversed, global warming will not be reversed. Um, this does not mean that we, um, that we can just leave it as it is and do nothing because every, uh, every improvement in emission reductions that we achieve uh, means that we have some more time to adapt to the changes that will inevitably take place. Um, and although humans are a, an incredibly, uh, incredibly good at, at adapting, um, this, there has never been such a fast change in the history of humanity. Um, and many other uh, animal species that humans depend on uh, the ecosystems depend on do not cannot adapt as fast. Uh, so what we need to do now is slow it down as much as possible um, and and reduce our emissions of of greenhouse gases so that um, ecosystems and and human uh, societies and and in different countries have uh, as much time as possible to adapt um, to the changes that will take place by the end of the century. Okay. Yeah, if I could just add that. So although I said it's not, uh, I don't think it is reversible at this point, I don't want to seem like a doomsday oral here. Um, what I'm meant to say, um, and if it, it's, that's not an excuse for us not to have actions. So it might not be reversible uh, immediately in our lifetime, 
but we had, do have a responsibility with the planet and with future generations and with uh, nature. So we do need to do something because uh, actions that we can implement now will have an impact later on. And then we can go back to adapt the climate and we to, to give species the opportunity to adapt back as Jakob said. And um, so uh, I think I just wanted to make that clear that um, it's not an excuse for inaction at all. Definitely, most definitely, yeah. Definitely a moral responsibility, I think. Um, and after all this for our children and nephews as well. Uh, but you talk about the Paris Agreement uh, just to put a bit of context for, for who doesn't know what those are, they were in 2016, if I'm not wrong, no, the uh, sort of agreement involving many uh, of the most important nations in the world. Uh, I think it was the first time, perhaps they tried in Kyoto before, like, but it was the first time some concrete initiative was taken in the international sphere no, in terms of putting all together and trying to solve the problem. So there is a global problem, I think, uh, but then coming to Europe, in Europe, it seems somehow that things are changing. Uh, in the sense, uh, there was way more attention in the past, I would say at least 10 years and even more in the past five years to uh, green policies. The Green Party was the fastest growing party at the last election. They uh, got a really good results. Uh, and also like the new European Commission seems to be more uh, more cautious, more uh, pay more attention to uh, these teams. Does this give us hope for the future? What do you think is in Europe? Like, can Europe be become a model for other uh, countries? And then I'll keep on now because. Uh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it gives me a lot of hope to see the way uh, Europe and the European Commission, particularly, is um, acting right now in terms of. Um, of climate of this climate crisis, um, they are trying a lot. They're so with the new recovery fund that came with um, with COVID pandemic, but even before with the modernization fund and the um, um, like, Horizon EU, they have been doing a lot more attention into changing our economy and our industrial fabric into more sustainable and environmentally friendly. Um, ways of production and of living and that gives me a lot of hope europe wants to be a leader in this transition and it's clearly sending signs to its members that uh, they need to adapt um having said so um although this is very good i still think we need more concrete plans so as we've seen with um, national pledges and uh, national determined contributions, you can say um, that you want to do something, but then you're not held accountable for it. So I think in the plans for, the, for this recovery fund, for instance, they should make clear targets and we need to measure them at the end to see, well, you use that money, but now we want to see if you reach this level of emission reduction or uh, energy saving or um, renewable energy penetration in your grid, uh, number of electric cars, charging point for electric cars, uh, retrofitting of houses, what was saved. Um, so I do think that the only way to make this work, 
this good initiative, this good momento that's going on in Europe is we need to set targets and ways to communicate the results, uh, to measure those results, and to be very transparent in you know, the entire way that we're doing this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you mentioned the, the recovery fund. I will just build one second on this and then uh, give the question also to Jacopo after. But uh, so I think this is a fundamental point, not the recovery fund, like it was probably the most important important European initiative uh, of recent years, because it's the first time countries, all European countries are basically sharing a debt uh, to answer to the, uh, it was of course made to answer to the coronavirus uh, crisis, to the pandemic, but actually, so an important part of that funding was supposed uh, to be spent in green energy. And they say was supposed because uh, as if for who followed the debate, there were certain countries, the so-called frugal countries who uh, protested against this federal budget and protested against uh, the uh, amount of funding that were planned and the uh, initial budget suffered uh, important uh, cuts in, uh, and uh, in particular these cuts regarded the federal budget so the portion of the budget which was had to be administered directly by the European Commission and you mentioned Horizon Europe before but also InvestEU and Just Transition Fund they were all massively they suffered massively massive cuts. For example, just to give you a number, Horizon Europe, you, you were mentioning the initial budget was supposed to be 13.5 billion, why now is 5 billion, so less than half will uh, remain. Like, uh, so what, what, what do you think? Like, you, uh, I agree there is uh, more attention, but is this enough? And then I extend this to Jacopo. Shouldn't we actually do been doing more in terms of real investment and leave a bit more initiative to the uh, European level. Yeah. yeah, do you want to take it? I mean, I, I don't know what to say. It's yes, obviously, we should be we should be doing more. Um, I, I don't know enough about European finances to know um, what kind of compromises must be made there. Um, I think we often forget how how complex the job of, of negotiators in Brussels is. There are so many different national interests um, that are conflicting that take, um, that, uh, that, that can slow down uh, negotiations and, and end up sort of uh, disappointing um, those parts of the population, those that, that, um, that want more ambitious targets. Um, the, the most recent example is from Poland and, and Hungary sort of holding um, the the agreement on how the recovery fund should be uh, should be administered and, um, and and I mean if we take the case of Poland for example they they rely heavily on so so different different countries for different countries in Europe are in very different situations to as to how fast they can actually transition to a green economy and. Um, for example, Poland is still heavily reliant on coal, uh, whereas uh, more developed countries such as Germany, they, they're more, uh, they get more of their electricity already from renewables. So it, we can't really expect uh, countries with such different economies to transition uh, equally fast. 
and we need to make provisions to help uh, countries that are more behind to transition faster. So overall, we should, I think we should put as much money as possible in the green transition and also when we decide how to distribute this across different member states, we, um, we should prioritize those countries that can make the, the sort of the biggest, the biggest emission, where, where we have the biggest opportunity for emission reductions. So Jacobo, if you don't mind me jumping in there for a sec, just a follow up to what you've just said. So it's, you guys agree that we should be spending more on the green transition as possible. And even you've gone further and said it should be focused more on the countries that can do more, which completely makes sense from an environmentalist point of view. But how do you get people behind the idea of investing more money in future generations when we're in the middle of a pandemic and an ongoing crisis? And even more so, how do you get countries like your Poland's, your Hungary's to say, okay, we're gonna, if, if you can get people to agree, okay, we need to invest in green, green, the green transition more than the, the ongoing crises. How do you then get those countries to allow and agree that more money should be focused on other countries like Germany who have the strongest economy in the EU? I understand that I understand it's because they can do the most, but how do we get the current population, living population, to put their own current interests aside and focus on, on the green transition? Uh, it's, it's very difficult. Obviously, it has to do with building a European identity, a shared, uh, and, and building it on, on the values that we all believe in, on values of, of solidarity and a, and a shared vision. If we agree that climate change is a shared problem, then we should also accept that the solution may be shared and that some people may have to um, sacrifice more. But I think the, so if we take the specific example of Poland, uh, again, uh, to, to illustrate my point, if we, so 80% of uh, Poland's electricity comes from coal and coal plants must must shut because coal is extremely uh, is extremely polluting there's a lot of greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere because of it um, but obviously these coal plants uh, give jobs to hundreds of thousands of, of Polish people and these people will have to find new jobs uh, and and I think we often forget how, how much of an opportunity this green transition may be um, to actually uh, finding and providing those new jobs, because that's the, the, the economy is going towards a green model. There is, it's, it's not only a, a sort of a, a political fact, mm -hmm. it's, it's also already going in that direction. There is a lot more investment in, uh, in green technologies now. Nobody is investing in coal anymore. Uh, so even if, if, if the Polish economy wants to survive, it will have to invest in, in, green, uh, in green technologies. What we need to do is use those funds to make sure that those people who are, uh, are vulnerable and currently work in industries that are highly polluting have the support they need to transition to, to sort of to retrain and gain those skills that they need to flourish in in the new in the new economy. 
Perfect. Anna, do you have anything to add on that? Absolutely no. I second everything that Jakob said. The, the only thing I would say is that we do know that this recovery fund is supposed to be answering uh, health and economic crisis, but they are not independent from the climate crisis we're going um, through. And I think that's very important and it needs to be communicated. Um, if we are trying to address the way that COVID impacts on uh, health and respiratory problems, then you also need to address pollution because people in areas that are more prone to hair pollution are also more prone to get uh, infected with COVID. So there's a clear relation there. Um, also in terms of the economic recovery, precisely as Jacopo said, the risk of continuing to invest in uh, fossil fuel based, uh, highly polluting industries right now and projects it's just too big so no one is doing it anymore the economy is going to transition and we need to make sure that it's transitioning in the right way in a just way and not leaving anyone behind i think that's how you get people to support this and to come behind it with clear communication that everything is uh, interrelated not only the social, the economics, the environmental, the health problems, but also within countries. It is a global problem and there's no frontiers that can separate the impacts on um, the climate crisis. So we need to work together. And I think that's where EU comes uh, and can step uh, as an incredible role because it has, well, in, if it's not to be just an economic union, and if it's to be a, a real union, and then we can work together. It has a congregation of, of countries that can work together to produce a massive change. And I, that's what I hope to see. Perfect. So you actually, you, you've touched on the next uh, question I wanted to ask both of you, and I'll leave this open for whoever wants to jump in. And it's to do with energy. So we all, we all know, for many years now that coal, other fossil fuels, they're not sustainable. We also know that hydroelectric, uh, wind energy, solar energy, these are much more sustainable fuels, but are there, or more sustainable energy, so excuse me, but are there any, can you give us a bit more detail on the different types of energy and just how sustainable and how, how likely they are to be used effectively? Like we've all, we've all, we all know fossil fuels are a thing of the past or they will be very soon. But specifically talking about wind and solar energy, but more specifically talking about nuclear energy, because this is one that I hear a bit of debate about these days, where some people are claiming, I like, I like the smile, it means you have an answer already. <laughs> nuclear energy is, from what I'm reading online and talking to some other people who probably know less than you guys, is that some argue it could be a solution. Could you just go through maybe the pros and cons of nuclear, and if there are any hidden negative aspects to solar energy or wind energy that maybe people like Paco and myself and the listeners wouldn't be aware of. Whoever wants to jump in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, talking on the different kinds. So one thing that it's, I think, very positive about renewable energies is that it is not one size fits all. So it gives a chance to different countries to use natural resources, their best natural resources to, and I'm not talking fossil resources, but uh, <laughs> to put forward the energy they need. 
um, it also will require a lot of collaboration, obviously. Um, so I cannot say this source of renewable energy would be better for everyone because everyone will be different. So you have the example of the UK where wind is now uh, in parity with, with um, electricity from natural gas, which is incredible. In fact, they're not burning cold uh, I think it's the I think the list the, the most recent results show that this the the time the year that least amount of coal has been burned in the UK since before um, the industrial revolution, which is amazing. Um, so it's it's very interesting, and also in in Germany at this point from solar, and you wouldn't think well solar in Germany would make such a big uh, hit, but uh, they are now with incredible results by using solar and panel um, photovoltaic energy in Germany. So I can't really give you like a recipe that would work for everyone. It needs to be really studied. Um, but one thing that I can say at, at this point, the one thing that was said a lot about renewables is that the price to pay for them was too big. And at this point, it's not anymore. They are, they are affordable, they're reliable, uh, and they do require investment uh, on a grid that's currently not prepared to have them. Mm -hmm. uh, but we do have money available now, so why not adapt and make something that could last and be sustainable for the future? That's, that's my first thinking. On the nuclear side, Okay, it is very controversial. I think it is, uh, it can be seen and it's been pointed out by a lot of people as a transition option. I don't think it is uh, an option that could be used for the future. The risks are too big. We're still using, uh, we're still mining and looking for resources. So we're still at some point we'll end up uh, using more than we can. Um, the, as I said, the price to build, install, secure uh, installations is way too big. The time that's required to build stations is way beyond the time that we have to address climate crisis right now. So I would not support nuclear. At this point, I don't think we need to because we do have way better options, not even as a transition one. I think um, we we can rely on renewables at this point in, in a better way. I don't know. I'd like to see what Jakob was to say. Um, so I think the first thing to clarify is um, the meaning of renewable, right? Because uh, fossil fuels are non-renewable in the sense that sooner or later uh, we will run out of them. We are currently digging um, more and more places in the oceans and in uh, and on land to find um, oil and, and natural gas in, in places that are, where it's harder and harder to get. Uh, and we are still currently investing in oil companies and gas companies to uh, to go and fetch that uh, uh, those those fuels out of the ground, but sooner or later, in the long term, they will finish. Um, and a similar argument uh, can be made for nuclear. Um, 
because the reserves of, of uranium will not work, are, are not infinite. Um, and we haven't solved the problem of how to dispose of them safely everywhere. Um, and this is obviously um, the main reason why uh, there, is, there has been backlash against uh, nuclear. If we instead take uh, hydroelectricity and uh, solar power and wind power, all of these um, sources are renewable. So the, the sun uh, will be there for the, for the foreseeable future, at least 5 billion years, I think. Um, and it's the sun that drives the wind, so the wind will always be there. Um, so if, if we think of human civilization as a long-term project, these are definitely the sources we should be um, should be taking our energy from. Having said that, I am not so confident uh, renewable energies will be able to provide all of the energy we require if we keep growing, uh, if the demand keeps growing as fast as it currently is, because um, the our lifestyle is very energy intensive and uh, there is a mantra of uh, economic growth everywhere around the world and economic growth is intrinsically coupled with uh, energy demand growth uh, and we cannot afford um, to supply all of that energy just with renewables um, this this is something that um, engineering researchers uh, everywhere around the world are uh, agree on so in together with transitioning to a clean energy supply system we also need policies to reduce energy demand and this requires energy efficiency uh, and, and material efficiency measures uh, which means for example insulating buildings better but it also means that we have to change our lifestyle. And this is definitely something that is not talked about enough in, um, in political circles. Um, if, I, if I can go back to a previous question, what gives me the most hope uh, for the future is actually um, the movements that I have, uh, have sprung up in, in Europe from, from the bottom. So the mobilization of, of the people with the Fridays for the Future movement and in the UK with Extinction Rebellion. These are, um, these are absolutely necessary because um, besides political action, we also need the will of, of parts of the population to, to say how things are and what we need to change. Um, so for example, we need, to, we need to be flying much less and uh, there has been this, this phenomenon in, in Sweden, which is a, a very special country of flight shame, where people have started flying less. And this is something we, we will have to face very, very soon. That's great. Uh, okay, I think uh, at this point, like uh, if we want to close, uh, I would uh, so close with uh, a question on perhaps hope. So uh, on concretely what is in your opinion the first probably action that needs to be like if we had to choose something that can really again make the difference like uh, at the governmental level at the commercial level at the individual level 
what is the priority and let's say so i give you the keys of the european politics of the next five years what is the uh, the first step you would make take and i will start uh, again with anna so i'm the first and jacobo second it is a big question very big i don't know if i'm qualified or to answer that but i i do i would like to take on something that jacobo said and that it's amazing it is true the the bottom-up movements the the grassroots movement that we've been seeing and especially from young people so you're asking before how can we say ask people to change their lifestyles now to gather for the benefit of future generations and you see young kids very very young asking for it they don't care if that's not for them but they want to see a future and that abolishment of a linguistic sense of living it's it's very gives me a lot of hope and so i'm not saying that the full responsibility comes from the individuals but i know and that's something i truly believe that every time you make um, you consume you're casting a vote you're saying what kind of future you want you're saying what kind of products you want you're saying what kind of lifestyle you want um, so apart from voting for people who actually have concrete plans and concrete measures, the way we do our lifestyles will have a tremendous impact on their futures. Um, so, and it, and it is really important to emphasize that because I feel that a lot of the time climate crisis can seem overwhelming. You see, oh my God, it's so big. Uh, the impacts are worldwide. What can I do. I'm just one person. So it's very interesting to show people, to empower them, to see, look, you can make a difference because if you do not want to buy this anymore, the companies, the way they're working right now, which is to maximize shareholder profit, it's not making profit anymore. They need to change it. Um, when you go to cast your ballot, you're saying what kind of future you want. So I need to, I think we really need to pass on this message that this is going to sound so cliche right now, but people do have the power. It is the power. And um, I think we just need to listen more and to trust ourselves in our individual actions more because that then can trickle up uh, into actions at a higher level. Jacobo, anything to add before we finish? Yes, I'd, I'd like to uh, compliment um, Anna's amazing answer um, with perhaps the, the the three priorities that I think any any government should have um, to address climate change, uh, which I think are transitioning to a clean energy supply system, electrifying the whole uh, transport uh, system to make it more efficient and to make it powered by renewables. And finally, uh, restoring and preserving our natural resources. So uh, keep the trees where they are, put the trees back where they used to be, uh, and protect the biggest forests in the planet um, and, 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 and make sure that wildlife thrives there um, because these are these are the resources that will um, that will help us keep the climate stable 
Brilliant. Okay, thank you so much uh, to both of you. Like, I think I really enjoyed this uh, uh, this podcast. I think it's the kind of podcast I wanted to hear. Uh, I think you put some so many concepts in such a clear way uh, that uh, really thank you for uh, all of this. And uh, I say goodbye also to our listeners and like uh, I invite you to the next podcast, which is going to be next week. Uh, we will let you know next week what the theme is going to be. Uh, so thank you to everyone and uh, have a nice uh, uh, Friday. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you.